Stay tuned, and we appreciate the fact that uh, Jennifer Stone is heard next here on KPFA with Stone's Throw. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw, and today is April the 10th, 2007. Yes, it's a National Poetry Month, April's Poetry Month. Ah, take a poet to lunch, take a poet to lunch, munch your lunch. Oh, what a week, people. The politics has given me such a headache. Aha, I woke up at 1 o'clock this morning, my... Youngest son was on a plane to uh, on a plane to Thailand, and I had a moment of existential angst. Woo-hoo-hoo. The world is not what it was. No, it is not. Ah, what a time to flee! Yes, we must retreat to poetry. It is the poet who always anticipates the worst. Yes, Cassandra's every one of us. I don't know what it is with me. I think it's uh, too much. Too much. The world is too much with us. This week, I'm drowned in uh, ancient history. It seems to me we are just going through the motions, deja vu all over again. History just goes round and round and round. Uh, I have this little pile of books by my bed. Plutarch's Lives of the Noble Romans and... Then the Gnostic Gospels, my dear Elaine, Pagels, uh, all that wonderful stuff about early Christianity that cheered me up over Easter. And then the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. Now, I had forgotten that one. It's in a little stack there with Lucretius, the nature of the universe and all those great books. Yes, The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon. I'd forgotten those wonderful sentences. They're whole paragraphs long. Seems to me that the 18th century take on the ancient world was what I was raised on. It's so perfect, and it bears very little resemblance to to the world of the 21st century. Uh, I I guess it is possible to look back on ancient Rome as a kind of utopia, uh, if you consider that, what is it, uh, about two-thirds of the world was living in slavery. But other than that, uh, they were pretty pretty well organized. There's something to be said for a common language. And, uh, you know, the Mediterranean world was pretty special. And then it broke up and fragmented into all those little babbling tiny little countries, and they didn't get along. I've never been sure whether central government is a good thing or not. Uh, 
I, any more than I'm sure whether uh, human religions are a good idea. Some people say that they keep us together, you know, the Holy Roman Empire that followed the Roman Empire. Uh, Christianity did feed people. Uh, I piled up another little batch of books all about the uh, the role of women in religion. Mary Magdalene is very fashionable at the moment. It's a new fiction book here called The Expected One. You know all that stuff about Mary Magdalene and Jesus Christ having raised a family. You know how it is. Uh, we will create the gods we need. We will make up the stories that we want and we will find a new paradigm to suit the new age. Uh, actually, I think it's a lot of fun, all this mythology. We know that human nature is a constant. We have the same psychological needs now that we had uh, eons ago. Uh, it's just that the technology has changed so much that I think it's a little dangerous to play with the old, um, the old emotions. I was thinking about that, looking at all the poems for this month. Uh, I wanted you to know I was desperate, uh, now that Rome has ended, for something to watch on the telly, and I turned on, uh, Elizabeth I with Helen Mirren. I like that much better than the one about the current queen. Elizabeth I is a BBC play about uh, the Elizabethan Elizabeth with Jeremy Irons. Uh, <laughs> yes, that's lovely. And I just thought for for National Poetry Month, I just thought I would uh, console you with the fact that even on television... HBO, of course, and the BBC, we do get some poetry. Elizabeth I was a poet. Some people think she may have contributed to the plays of um, old Willie Shakespeare. I don't know. You never can tell. Maybe she did um, uh, write a few lines. Uh, in any case, uh, for some peculiar reason, maybe Helen Mirren requested it, they decided to put in the actual poem written by the actual Queen Elizabeth, and they tucked it into this four-hour drama. It was a little bit, uh, Elizabeth has just parted from, oh, one of uh, the French suitors, the Dauphin has come, and he has offered her marriage and all that sort of thing, but he being Catholic and she Protestant, and there was a political brouhaha in any way. There's a lovely scene where she uh, uh, puts him in the little um, puts him in the little gondola there, and he uh, he uh, slips away down the Thames, and he has left her. And uh, she says that actually, of all the suitors who had applied, he was the one she might actually have enjoyed living with. Um, she stands there on the dock, uh, and uh, he must go. I think that maybe they cut the middle verse. No, no, there are three verses. This is written by Elizabeth I, Queen of England, um, born 1533, yes, born in a Christ year. Lived to be 70, died 1603. Yes, 70 was quite old in those days. They say that she stood until the last couple of hours. Uh, that's always dramatized uh, at the end of this particular play. 
she did lie down there at the end. And I remember what was it they gave her? A few final lines, something like, uh, uh, remembering. She said, yes, uh, there was this, this man. And she's thinking, of course, of, uh, uh, the character played by Jeremy Irons, the, the young, uh, the love of her life when she was younger, uh, 1533 to 1603. And the title of the poem is On Monsieur's Departure. And they let Helen Mirren deliver this, uh, well, actually, no, 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 it was an internal monologue. And uh, she's there on the dock, but then she's walking through the palace. And we hear it as an internal monologue. I grieve and dare not show my discontent. I love and yet am forced to seem to hate. I do yet dare not say I ever meant. I seem stark mute. But inwardly do prate, I am and not. I freeze and yet am burned, since from myself my other self I turned. My care is like my shadow in the sun, follows me flying, flies when I pursue it, stands and lies by me does what I have done. This too familiar care does make me rue it, no means I find to rid him from my breast till by the end of things it be suppressed. Some gentler passions slide into my mind, for I am soft and made of melting snow, or be more cruel, love, and so be kind. Let me or float, or sink, be high or low, or let me live with some more sweet content, or die, and so forget what love e'er meant. That is the composition of Elizabeth I. There is no information as to whether the current Elizabeth, Elizabeth II, uh, is a writer or writes poetry. Mm -hmm. Stevie Smith mm, writes very comic, comic portrayals of the present queen. You can look those up if you think. You think it would be interesting. Apparently, the current Queen of England was required to give a medal, some kind of poetry medal, to Stevie Smith. And Stevie Smith writes about that a uh, few comic turns as she takes. Uh, yes, poetry, ah, the sound always makes the sense. I'm not quite sure that poem, um, well... It helped the drama. It definitely did. It was very sad and melancholy. And you almost believed that Queen Elizabeth was sorry she hadn't uh, married this nice chap. But we knew that she was much happier to be married to England and keep herself to herself. After all, uh, <laughs> she had to the crown. Who wouldn't want that more than anything else? In any case, 
uh, I went through my books again to see whether or not poetry could save our lives at this time. And mm-hmm, I found myself going back to childish things. Uh, I read the war poems. There's so many books out now. Poems about the war, uh, deploring the war, reviews of all the uh, poetry that has been written about wars. My particular favorite is a book called Women on War, in which we read all the, uh, uh, you know, all the hand-wringing and uh, agony, the agony of men, of women, uh, who can't answer the questions that war poses. Uh, let me read you just one little piece. Here's something by Herman Melville. It is all about um, <laughs> something that happened at the height of the Civil War. Herman Melville was born in 1819, died in 1891. It's very neat to just turn the numbers around. I remember we did that in school, 1819, 1891. That's so neat, yes. <laughs> he wrote a poem called The Housetop, and he did this because in July of 1863, at the height of the Civil War, there was rioting in New York City. The riots broke out against new draft laws. These laws provided two features which made for public anger. Draftees could purchase exemption for $300, or they could hire an able-bodied substitute acceptable to the army. <laughs> Gee, maybe those guys in uh, uh, Omaha could do that. Uh, those um, men who've been called up to go to Iraq again. Uh, you know, they were supposed to be home for a couple of years, and now they have to turn around and go back to Iraq. Anyway, uh, there were two legalized claims of exemption back in 1863, uh and they were not implausibly seen as an example of oppressive and self-interested legislation engineered by privilege, which the impoverished working man would have to bear. So angry mobs, largely Irish-born, terrorized New York City. Homes and public buildings were fired. Taverns were pillaged. Uh... Negroes were beaten to death and their bodies suspended from lampposts. This footnote is uh, written um, by Lawrence Perrine, Introduction to Poetry, written more than 50 years ago. Yes, so the word for African Americans then was Negroes. At the end of four grisly days, the riots were put down by troops from the Army of the Potomac. <laughs> Good Lord, they had to call in the Army of the Potomac to end the riots in New York City. They used cannon and howitzers. How about that? Anyway, Herman Melville felt called upon to write a poem called The Housetop in July of 1863. And he writes a note here at the beginning of the poem. He says, I dare not write the horrible and inconceivable atrocities committed. Uh, mm-hmm. Okay, the draft rioters, indeed. Uh, he notes, uh, yes, in a night piece called The Housetop, 
No sleep. Sultriness pervades the air and binds the brain, a dense oppression, such as tawny tigers feel in matted shades, vexing their blood and making apt for ravage. Beneath the stars, the roofy desert spreads, vacant as Libya. All is hushed nearby. Yet fitfully from afar breaks a mixed surf of muffled sound. The atheist roar of riot. Yonder where parching Sirius set in drought. Balefully glares red arson there and there. The town is taken by rats. Ship rats. Rats of the wars, all civil charms and priestly spells, which late held hearts in awe, fear-bound, subjected to a better sway than sway of self. These, like a dream, dissolve and man rebounds, whole eons back in nature. Hail to the low, dull rubble, dull and dead and ponderous drag that shakes the wall. Wise Draco comes deep in the midnight roll of black artillery. He comes, though late, in code corroborating Calvin's creed and cynic tyrannies of honest kings. He comes, nor parleys, and the town redeemed gives thanks devout, nor being thankful heeds the grimy slur on the republic's faith implied, which holds that man is naturally good, and more is nature's Roman never to be scourged. And that's the end of the <laughs> night piece by Herman Melville. I will um, be reductive and... Uh, explain a bit. Um, Calvin, of course, it refers to the profoundly influential 16th century uh, theologian from Geneva. He wrote Institutes of the Christian Religion. It emphasized that man is born in sin and reared in corruption. You know. <laughs> Calvin, what was it? Women whose sleeves were too short. I think you know, he cut off one of the arms. Okay. Uh, Andraco is the Athenian statesman, you know, the draconian laws. Uh, they were written in the 7th century B.C. He, Draco codified a severe set of laws which provided death penalty for almost everything. Well, at least nearly all crimes. Uh, in any case, uh, yes, he's called upon to put an end to these riots in New York. Uh He's late, but it, yes, he shows up with black artillery, it says here. And, uh, the Republic's faith holds that man is naturally good and is nature's Roman. Apparently, the rule was that Roman citizens could not be whipped or scourged. Uh, 18th and 19th century American oratory commonly compared the American and Roman republics. Hmm, nowadays, it's nothing but the Brits, yes, British and Roman republics. Everywhere we look, uh, in any case, um, Herman Melville 
Got it right. Let's see. At the bottom of the page is a wonderful poem by Walter Savage Landor that I just, I must read you um, apropos of nothing. It's just that I've always thought it was my favorite poem for an old dude. Uh, Walter Savage Landor was born in 1775 and died in 1864. And this is written for his 75th birthday. Now, if I hang on, oh boy, let's see, it'll be a while, but if I make it to 75, yes, I like this, I want it to, I'll put it on the wall. Walter writes, I strove with none, for none was worth my strife. Nature I loved, and next to nature, art. I warmed both hands before the fire of life. It sinks, and I am ready to depart. Terrific. What a great um, epitaph that would make. Uh, it's almost worth getting a tombstone for. Never mind, never mind. I'm looking at this little collection I have here called Sound and Sense. Yes, the sound makes the sense. Uh isn't it strange um, how prose and poetry uh, have changed over the years? It seems to me, when I was growing up, it was assumed that poetry was an easier way to teach or to tenderize people. Uh, nowadays, it's considered kind of exclusive and hard, you know. Prose is the easy way, or well, these days it's TV journalism. That's where people get their information the um, ancients, well, the Elizabethans actually said that poesy or poetry was better for ordinary folks, you know, for laymen, for uh, uh, people who just wanted to uh, enjoy their lives. Let's see. I'm one of those people who teethed on T.S. Eliot. Uh, <laughs> I think the, what I would call the shallow sophistication of my youth was made up of poets like T.S. Eliot, uh, The Blood of the Lamb. I think I was deeply impressed with the fact that T.S. Eliot had uh, gone to England and become a high church uh, Episcopalian. Uh, it's a wonderful movie called Tom and Viv, if you ever get a chance to see it. It's about uh, the way T.S. Eliot, uh, let us say... Um, plagiarized, let's put it that way, the soul of his wife, Vivian. Uh, she was mad as a hatter, of course, but uh, it turns out she just had a hormone imbalance. And uh, he put her in the bug house. Uh, she had to pay for her own incarceration. In any case, uh, uh, let's say it's Willem Dafoe and Miranda Richardson, perfectly Fabulous movie. I've watched it so many times, but it's so very sad. Um, Rosemary Harris plays the mother of the uh, bride, yes, Vivian's mother, a woman who simply cannot understand uh, her daughter and the reasons why. Uh, well, she's considered, the daughter Viv is considered morally insane. <laughs> she's rude to people. You know, she insults Virginia Woolf in any case. Uh, once her um, menstrual periods stop, she uh, straightens out immediately, but she's still in the bug house and she dies there. Uh, 
T.S. Eliot does not go to visit her. Uh, oh, dear. Let's just... Let's just have some fun. Let's read uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. That's my indulgence for National Poetry Month. <laughs> Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table, let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent. To lead you to an overwhelming question, oh, do not ask what is it, let us go and make our visit. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seeing that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house and fell asleep. And indeed there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say, how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin, my necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin, they will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse, for I have known them all already known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I know the voices dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, when I am pinned and wriggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt-ends of my days and ways, and how should I presume? And I have known the arms already, known them all, 
arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamplight, downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table or wrap about a shawl, and should I then presume? And how should I begin? Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves, leaning out of windows? I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling along the floors. Of silent seas. Many, many more pages here before the end. Before, <laughs> yes, I grow old, shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled, and shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare to eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think. That they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back. When the wind blows the water white and black, we have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us and we drown. This has been Jennifer Stone. Be back on the air Thursday morning at eight twenty. Till then, go easy, and if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can.